Good evening, we are in Ezra chapter 7 and 8, uh, if you would, uh, just turn to Ezra chapter 7, if you need a Bible, Richard's got some in his hand, he'll bring in one right to your seat while I go get me a bottle of water. couple announcements before we uh, pray. Uh, I talked to Vicki Glenn today, and uh, the surgery for Ray, he had his hip replaced. Surgery was successful, but coming out of the surgery, he's not doing so well. He's kind of not all there, I guess she said, and, and uh, uh, you're not, he's not making sense what, he, when he's, what he's saying and talking, and, you know, they said it could be you know, just the result of the surgery. They don't know, and so uh, they released him today. He's home, but she's not sure, so we just want to pray that, you know, he comes back to his senses and everything begins to clear up for him. Uh, she said that sometimes, in, in, and I don't know, Kevin, you might know this, sometimes in surgeries, if you have something else wrong through the surgery, it can increase that other thing that's going on. And, and I don't know, she said it might be some dementia or not, what she said, but uh, we don't know. And I know, I think it was um, Dwight Piper's grandmother, or mother, rather, she had hip surgery, and she was, like, out of it for a good week, at least, and then she came back around. So just pray for Ray. Pray that uh, things clear up for him. And then I also heard uh, about an hour before I came here is that Skip Heitzig, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Albuquerque, is on his way back to the hospital again with, uh, they think, another brain bleed he had about uh, three weeks ago. Uh, they did surgery. They relieved that, and now he's, he was on his way back to the hospital about... Uh, as far as I know, about an hour ago. And so we want to pray for that situation, and, and, uh, and then we'll uh, get into God's Word. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, your grace. Lord, as we sang this evening, you are a good, good Father. And as a good, good Father, you take care of us, Lord, better than our earthly fathers could. And Lord, you're there for us, and we thank you for that. And we want to lift up our brother Ray to you, uh, and just pray for a quick healing for him. We pray for Skip as well. Both these men, Lord, uh, love you, have served you, and, and uh, uh, Lord, they honor you. And, and pray, Father, that you would just heal them, touch them, give doctors wisdom in treating them, Lord, and just uh, bring them back to health quickly and uh, back into service for you quickly, Lord. And uh, just thank you for these, these men, Lord. And Father, thank you for this time tonight that we can look to your word and know, Holy Spirit, that you are here to teach us. And instruct us in all things that pertain to life and godliness as we dig into your word. So thank you for this time together. We ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we made it to chapter 7. <laughs> Through no snow cancellations or, you know, ice cancellations. We looked last week at chapters 5 and 6. We saw that the people, uh, after the Lord strongly spoke to the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, returned to the work, starting, uh, started rebuilding the temple once again. Now, as soon as they did, opposition arose, as always, but God intervened, allowed them to continue the work while inquiries were made to King Darius. 
And God immediately, or ultimately rather, blessed by putting it in the king's heart to not only approve the work to go on, but to protect it, even finance it, as well as, as by those trying to stop the work. And so finally, as we looked, as we closed last week, the temple was completed. They, they had a dedication service. They celebrated the Passover. Just a great time of celebration. Now, between chapter 6 and chapter 7, there's a gap of about 60 years. And during this time, the story of Esther takes place. So if you want to know where Esther takes place, that's where it takes right there. In fact, the book of Esther spotlights God's protection of the Jews still living in Persia. We know in 445 B.C., the Persian king Artaxerxes, uh, Longamanus, would issue a new decree authorizing Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But before the, the walls could be rebuilt, God needed to build up the builders. The people had become lethargic. They had compromised spiritually. They are in need of revival. That's why 13 years before Nehemiah, God raises up a priest named Ezra to return to Judah along with others and lead a revival of purity among the Jews. It's been rightly said, Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, Ezra the people, and Nehemiah the walls. Now again, the temple had been rebuilt, but there was a season of silence for almost 60 years. That is nothing... Noteworthy happened in Jerusalem that was recorded in Scripture. Maybe you can relate to that. I mean, you've been born again, freed from carnality that you, that you once had. You're, you're thankful for your salvation. But it seems like maybe nothing's happening presently. And, and, and the good news is that Ezra chapter 7 and 8 will speak to your situation. Because again, it's, where, it's when Ezra appears on the scene. Ezra's name means help or helper. And he's going to return to Jerusalem to bring help and support to the people that are already there. To bring a renewed sense of excitement in serving the Lord. Ezra was, Ezra was a priest, but understand, he was unable to function as a priest because he had been held captive in Babylon. So instead, we'll read that he became a skilled scribe. Most scholars believe that Ezra wrote First and Second Chronicles along with Psalm 119, and well, it's this book that, that bears his name. We also know that he was in charge of the council of 120 who put together the canon of scripture and the one who inaugurated the synagogue, a place where God's people could gather together, study the scriptures. Which, uh, all of this really parallels the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And now Ezra, you might say, in typology is a type of the Holy Spirit. It was Jesus who told us that it was important that he go for he would send another helper or comforter in John 16, 7. Holy Spirit is our helper. He's our comforter. One that comes alongside and helps. Ezra means helper. As I said, Ezra was also scribed and he prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and was responsible for teaching the law. In the same way, because it is the Spirit who searches the deep things of God according to 1 Corinthians 2.10 and it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that teaches us what God's Word says, how to understand God's Word. Ezra pictures uh, this, and the Holy Spirit, the helper, helps us to understand God's Word. The Holy Spirit, you know, we, is a ready scribe to our hearts. Peter tells us that the prophets wrote as the Holy Scripture moved them according to 2 Peter 1, 1, 2. Also, the Holy Spirit, like Ezra, is a teacher. John said in John, uh, Jesus said in John 14, 26, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all things that I said to you. So again, we see Ezra as a picture of the Holy Spirit. Now, I mentioned already chapters 1 through 6 dealt with the construction of the temple. Now, in chapters 7 through 10, we see the instruction of the people. 
Chapter 1 through 6, we saw the rebuilding. Chapter 7 through 10, we see the reviving. No sure indication of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of an individual or a church or a nation is when they are moved with excitement to follow the Lord and to, and to serve the Lord. Now, the first five verses here were introduced to Ezra's genealogy, tracing it all the way back to Aaron. Look at verse 1 now. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zehariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, and the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. So we see Ezra's genealogy going back 16 generations to the first high priest, Moses' brother Aaron. Some famous priests are, are listed here. Zadok was, was David's high priest. Uzi, he was uh, good with an automatic weapon. Uh, you have a... <laughs> I don't know. He might have been. I don't... Phineas was Aaron's grandson, and, and the guy who ended the judgment God sent upon Israel. Remember his story? He entered the tent and threw his javelin through a, an Israeli and a Midianite girlfriend as they mocked God's law, and they were, they were fornicating. And then finally, Eliezer was Aaron's son and, and Moses' nephew. In other words, Ezra came from a noble stock, a descendant of the high priest, a, a zeal for God surged through his veins. God, godly passion was a part of his heritage. We read in verse 6, this Ezra came up from Babylon and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. Stop there for a moment. So we know that he was a, a priest, a scribe. Scribes were the Pastors of the day, if you would, men who learned and taught the law of God. The, the work included interpretation, copying of the scriptures, and teaching it to others. This is where the title scribe comes from. It literally means to count exactly or relate accurately. Ezra's job was vitally important. He was good at it. Israeli culture was, was full of Bible references and reflections, and, and you picked up a fear of God and at least a, cur a cursory knowledge of his laws through the culture. But Babylon was a pagan culture. I mean, if you were to know God's word, you had to be taught at home and by teachers or scribes. And, and, you know, I think this is the same thing that happened in our country today in America. There was a day when our culture was based on biblical worldview, biblical truth. Not any longer. I think we're just as pagan as Babylon was. That's why today Bible teaching is so vital. If you're going to know God's word, you have to be taught it at home and at church and and that's why, again, a strategic Jewish institution developed during the Babylonian exile, the, the synagogue, as I mentioned already. The word synagogue means assembly or gathering. Before the captivity, Jews assembled at the temple. But in, in Babylon, they had no temple. So they gathered in synagogues to study, to pray, and to worship. When these post-exile Jews settled in Galilee, they continued to build synagogues. Jesus, we know, spent a lot of time in the synagogue of Nazareth and Capernaum. When the rebuilt temple of Jerubbabel was destroyed in the Romans by the Romans in 70 A.D., the Jews were once again scattered. They would then meet again in the synagogues and just keeping Judaism alive for the last 2,000 years. So again, verse 6, this Ezra came up from Babylon and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all of his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So Ezra was, was among numerous Jews still living in Babylon. 
they, they, he comes and he makes this request to uh, King Artaxerxes, asking if he and whatever other Israelites wanted to could go to Jerusalem and join the 50,000 or so who were there already. The king agreed, and Ezra uh, leads for Jerusalem. Verse 6, again, Ezra is described as a, as a skilled scribe. In the King James, is translated ready. Now, when did he get ready? Uh, you know, he... When did he get skilled? He got ready. He got skilled while in captivity in Babylon. Now, I find that interesting because while in captivity, Ezra could have complained. He could have been angry because he was not in a, a greater position of importance, you know, perhaps like, like Daniel was. He could have been upset. He could have said, oh, I said, I'm in captivity. I'm not happy. I've got nothing to do here. But he didn't do that. Instead, he simply got ready. He prepared himself for this day. In the same way, if you're in that place of captivity, maybe you feel like you're boxed in wanting to do more. Don't worry about it. Don't complain about it. Just prepare. Prepare, study, pray, seek the Lord. And in his time, at the right time, he will open up for you those things that he's prepared for you to do. I think for me, I was 19 years in, in serving in the ministry before the Lord called me into full-time ministry. Maybe you feel called to, to the ministry or, or that ministry. Wait on the Lord. Knock on the door. Keep preparing yourself. I like what Zechariah 4.10 says. Let us not despise the day of small things. Ezra spent uh, years preparing during those small days. And then the Lord tapped him on his shoulder and said, Okay, it's time for you to go. Time to lead another group out of captivity back to the promised land. And off they went. Look at verse 8. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. On the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So the trip from Babylon took four months. By our calendar, they left Babylon on April 8th, 458 B.C., arrived in Jerusalem on August 4th, traveling about 900 miles. Now, I want to point out that verse 6 says that the king granted him, that's Ezra, all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Verse 9 says that, according to the good hand of his God upon him. Why was the hand of God upon Ezra? Well, verse 10, because Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. See, God uh, desires to bless those who place such a high value on God's Word. Ezra had set his heart on studying God's Word, putting what he learned into practice in his own life, teaching others uh, to obey God's Word. All of these things are connected to the promises of God's blessing. Because Ezra made God's Word a priority in his life, God made Ezra's life a priority. Now, as we come to verse 11, we back up for a moment and are given the details in which all this trip came about. And then it concludes at the end of chapter 8. Verse 11 we read, This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. So he was not only a skillful scribe, but he's described here as an expert in the words of the commandment of the Lord. I mean, an expert. Expert in God's word. Man, how would you like to be known as an expert in God's word? I mean, all of us, you, 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 you want your expertise in something in life. Everyone is an expert in something in life. You know, where you have the most experience, the most invested of your time, applied yourself to the greatest degree. 
Now, where you, you've, uh, you know, invested your intensity or your passion or your energy or your concentration. I think when it comes to God's word, we all should strive to be an expert, not just Ezra's. Ezra became an expert in scriptures the way you become an expert in anything else. You pursue, you, you prepare, you put your heart into it. You study, you seek, you apply, you share. So then we read in verse 11, this is a copy of the letter that the king Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest. Here's the letter starting in verse 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go to Jerusalem may go with you. So the king not only gave verbal permission to Ezra, but to the whole, a written decree, anybody that wants to go, they can go. Verse 14, And whereas you are being sent by the king and the seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God which is in your hand, and whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon along with the freewill offering of the people and the priest are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Verse 17, Now therefore be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them at the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of your God. Also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. So the king and his counselors were sending silver and gold with Ezra to buy offerings to give to the, to, to the Lord. They were also given permission to receive more from those who gave them free will offerings. It says that in verse 16. It's a verb that means to give voluntarily, to offer freely. It's actually repeated twice here, literally saying, along with the voluntary giving of those who voluntarily give, I'm giving you this. You know, to this day, I don't understand the mentality of some churches and some pastors and preachers who mandate that people who attend their churches must give. Man, if you want to be a member of this church, you've got to make a giving pledge for the year. And, and if you don't fulfill your giving pledge, we will send bouncers, I, I mean I mean, elders to your door to uh, collect from, I mean, remind you, yeah, remind you, that, that's it. And they do these things. You know, I, I've read some churches, in order to be a member of their church, you have to sign an agreement that you will tithe at least 10% of your income, and, 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 and you have to produce your, your W-2 in order to they can find out what that is. And, and people, amazing, people actually tolerate this coming from a church. Listen, giving has been and always should be about your heart. When Moses told the people that they were building the tabernacle in Exodus 35, 29, we read that the children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord. All the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of the work which the Lord by the hand of Moses has commanded to be done. They gave because they, they were moved to the heart to give. When the Apostle Paul was taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem, he told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, they were to give as a purpose in their heart. It's all about the heart. Last thing that I ever want for this church is to become a, a guilt-inducing, phone-soliciting, bell-ringing collection agency. We're to learn about God. We're to worship God. And I trust as you learn that God desires your free will offerings, you give to Him those offerings and worship freely. 
And I know this Calvary chapels out there, they don't even take up an offering. They just have boxes in the back of the church to set up for them. Nothing wrong with that. I prefer in our fellowship to give people the opportunity to worship the Lord through song and, and giving is an act of worship, not to be seen by men, but to be in that place of worshiping the Lord when we give. Because, again, it is a blessing to give. It's a privilege to give. But understand, God's not broke. No, Psalm 50, verse 10 tells us He owns cattle on a thousand hills. And listen, if the Lord has a work He wants to get done, you know, it, it comes back down to your choice whether or not you wish to be a part of it or not. Whether you'll be storing up treasures in heaven or on earth. Because God will accomplish His work one way or another, with or without you. You or I just missed out on the blessing that comes from being a part of it when we don't give. So we see God providing here for Ezra abundantly for the work that the Lord wanted to accomplish. But note in these next few verses where the extra funds come from. This is interesting, starting in verse 20 to 24. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Also we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. I love this. Truly an incredible time in history. The government was saying, whatever funds you have need of that are not provided by your free will offerings, we're going to help out. We're going to give to you. That's pretty amazing, huh? Well, today, you know, our, our country cries, separation of church and state and insist that not a penny of government money is to be used for any religious organization, any reason. They forget that it was a church that was the welfare program up to the 1940s. The president, FDR, who thought the government should take over instead of the churches. If anything, I think there should be more faith-based programs that the government should be supportive of. But it's also interesting that what King Artaxerxes says in verse 24, he says, We inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, or death of them. There's your tax-exempt status right there. The guys that are in, in the ministry, you know what? You have a tax-exempt status. I mean, that's the way the church should work. The state should work. Verse 25. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom... Set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. So we have to have some sort of form of law, he's saying here. He's instructing Ezra to, to appoint magistrates and judges and, and govern everyone west of the Euphrates River. Set up a police force, a judicial system. Everything was given to Ezra for what he needed. You know, where God guides, God provides. And it's really incredible as we see just the providence of God in this situation here. That word providence means divine guidance or care. It's almost exaggerated here in the story with, with Ezra. I mean, just, well, not, not, yeah, you can go. But not only that, here, 
we're going to help out. You can take all these guys, plus all this silver, plus all this gold, plus, hey, you know what, take this as well. And whatever you're short, the government's going to take it. You're going, man, just, just supernatural, divine guidance and care. And I think it's happened a lot of times in our lives. It's just the, the, the divine guidance and care. You know, you're running late for an appointment and, and, and so you don't leave the house when you, you should have. But if you had left when you, when you, you know, you should have, you would have been involved in that car accident. You know, and you go, oh man, I, God's divine guidance and care. I read a story about two brothers that were riding their bikes and as they were riding down this hill picking up speed. The younger brother was heading for the intersection, not noticing the cars that were also heading towards the intersection. So the older brother did all that he, all what he felt to do, and that was to run to the, in the back wheel of the younger brother's tire and cause him to, to knock down on the ground before reaching that intersection. You know, they got up mangled and, and crying with cuts and bruises, but the younger one brother figured out, you know what, had he not done that, I'd have been hit by a car. Brother stopped him. All that to say, it's hard to believe sometimes when we face struggles and we're going through difficulties, but God is using them in our lives, maybe to prevent a greater tragedy. Sometimes that's the case. We can just look and see the providence of God in your life and you go, man, I just see the providence of God. See, the providence of God is not meant to be scary or or menacing. Because when you understand how much God loves you and and wants the best for you, the, the providence of God can be quite comforting. And there are times when the providence of God is working in a person's life to give them this divine guidance and care. And that can come in the form of blessings from God as well. Which I'd rather have the blessings for the divine care than, than the, you know, the, the accidents in a while. But Ezra here was experiencing the blessing of God. And so he responds. Look at verses 27 and 28. Just out of, out of his heart, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, who has put such a thing in this, in this king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem, and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty princes, so I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. I mean, he's so blessed by this decree that he interjected the text with the praise for God. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put these things into the king's heart to, to beautify the house of the Lord. In other words, the Lord not only wants to build his house, he wants to, to beautify it. He's not just building up people, but he wants to beautify us as people. This speaks of, of sanctification. Psalm 149, 4 tells us, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Well, now we come to chapter 8. In the first 14 verses, we have a list of those who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem with Ezra. Verse 1 says, these are the heads of their fathers' houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon and the reign of King Artaxerxes. And you can go home and read every one of those names and pronounce them however you want to pronounce them. We jump down to verse 15. Now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. And I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi there. So we see Ezra, he's looking among the people. Literally, he observed them to consider, perceive, discern, or understand. He was scoping them out, kind of seeing what kind of people they were. Who's godly? Who are the leaders here? Who would be worthy of an appointment as a magistrate or a judge? It's always educational to observe people, listening to what they have to say, watching how they respond in situations, looking for the Lord working in their lives. Especially true in raising up leadership within the church. 
I think of Paul's words to young Timothy about raising up leadership. He wrote in 1 Timothy 5.22, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily. I think that's hard for, for pastors because you have such a desire to see people raised up in ministry and serve the Lord. But I also know the heartache that comes when you raise up someone too quickly, when they're not ready. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 and 4, A bishop or elder then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house while having his children in submission with all reverence. The only way to know that is by being among the people and observing the people and looking at them, see what, what manner of persons they are. That's what Ezra was doing here. He's observing the people. I mean, he's about to embark on this 900-mile journey, and he's getting ready to go, and, and he's looking around, and he's going, oh, no, we don't have any Levites going on the trip. None of the son of the Levite there, verse 15 says. Now, in the first wave that left with Zerubbabel and, uh, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, there were about 50,000 people. Out of the 50,000, there were just 74 Levites. Now, with, with Ezra in these first 14 verses of chapter 8, we see only about 1,500 people going, but no Levites. And you wonder why the Levites were so reluctant to, to return from Babylon. Not sure. You know, maybe they got too comfortable where they were at, just didn't want to go. Maybe, you know, many, for many years of experience in ministries that with the people, you know, Maybe they said, you know, if I can't serve in some leadership position, then I don't want to go back. Maybe they're looking for something else. Don't know. So it wouldn't surprise me if the Levites didn't want to go because they, they wouldn't be recognized or, or maybe they weren't, didn't have a position. But Ezra does what he believes is best. Look at verse 16. He finds a solution to the problem. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, Meshulam, leaders, also for Joriab and Elnathan, men of understanding. And I gave them a command for Edo, the chief man at the place, Casaphia. And I told them what they should say to Edo and his brethren, the Nethanim, at the place of Casaphia, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. Then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and brothers, 18 men, and Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah, and of the sons of Merari, his brothers and their sons, 20 men, also of the Nethanim, whom David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanim, all of them were designated by name. If you go back to our studies in chapters 2 and chapter 3, the Nethanims, if you remember, they were uh, from the early days of Joshua's conquest, the Gibeonites knew they were going to be destroyed, so they disguised themselves as, as these travelers from all far away. They made their, their, their sandals look all beat up and everything, and, and they had this peace treaty with Joshua, and, and Joshua discovered they had been tricked. Joshua honored the treaty, nonetheless, but he made the Gibeonites serve from that day on. Their name, Nethodims. And that's where we get them from. It means hewers of wood and drawers of water. So basically, they're servants. Now, and all in all, in those last five verses, Ezra convinced more than 250 guys to, to join up. How did he manage to recruit so many volunteers? I wish I knew. <laughs> Ezra simply says in verse 17, I told them what they should say. Man, if that would be the key, then, then man, we got all sorts of children ministry teachers and, and uh, people volunteering for ministry. Ezra's ready to go. Levites are in place. Levi, Levi, Levi's. The Levites are in place. 
But are they ready to go? Do they leave? Not just that. Look at verse, verse 21. One more important aspect to the trip that Ezra was not to forget about. Verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek Him. But his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this. And he answered our prayer. I love this. Ezra says, I went before the king and I told him that the hand of our God was with us and he'll be against our enemies and will lead us back to our land. Then he started looking around and he's seeing all these people and all these, the distance they got to go and the family and the little kids and he know the dangers along the way and, and the normal thing would be for him to ask the king for help if you guards are right along with them. But then he also knew that the king would say, oh, I thought that you, you were trusting in the Lord. So I can't go back to the king and ask him now because of that. Now, I think sometimes we can become very, very eloquent about how we're trusting in God and how wonderful He is when, he, when we're talking to people who are struggling. Oh, just, just trust in the Lord, brother. Trust in the Lord, sister. God is there for you. But when we have our own problems and someone tells you to trust in the Lord, it's like, oh, you just don't understand. You don't know what, what's going on. Ezra's just being honest here. He says, I was ashamed to go ask the king after I told him I would, he, God would take care of us. So what does he do instead? I love this. He calls for a prayer meeting and a fast. Listen, Ezra knew that you can prepare, observe safety rules, surround yourself with bulletproof glass, buy insurance and all the rest. But if God is not granting you safety, there's nothing that's going to protect you. I like Isaiah 31.1. It says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Ezra knew this. He knew that his protection came from God. Otherwise, you have no protection at all. So they, they humbled themselves before the Lord God. They fasted. They sought the Lord and prayed for a safe journey. I like that. Before just stepping out, they said, man, we just need to spend time with the Lord. Then verses 24 through 30, we read Ezra say, And I separated twelve of the leaders of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their brethren with them, and I'm glad their names aren't listed, and weighed out for them the silver and the gold and the articles, the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel who were present had offered. I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 gold basins worth a thousand drachmas and two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord, the articles are holier also, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of your fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel and Jerusalem in the chamber of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites received the silver and the gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. This kind of explains how Ezra set apart 12 of the leading priests and entrusted stewardship of the valuables until they were brought to the temple in Jerusalem and given as donations. They split up the money, so to speak. It's okay, you know what? we're not going to have one guy, we're not going to put all our eggs in one basket, we're going we're to spread it out so everybody is responsible for what they have so they can make it safely to Jerusalem. 
Really just the, the art of delegating to get the job done. Making sure everyone had a part to play on the trip. There's wisdom there. Then verse 31. Then we, de- we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. Now that verse I find really interesting. See, although they prayed and they fasted and they humbled themselves before God for a safe journey, they still encountered enemies and ambushes along the way. Now, of course, God delivered them, but God did allow the ambushes to come. I wonder how many of us have or how many of us know of people who have had encounters or ambushes, so to speak, difficulties in their lives that the Lord allows, but rather than relying on the Lord, you know, and pressing forward, they retreat. Oh, I, I got I to gotta stop. I got to go the other way. Now here, you know, what God is trying to teach us to recognize, he, hey, he's got his hand of deliverance. He's seeing me, God, in a remarkable way. Sadly, there are far too many people, the first sign of difficulty, they, they turn and run. How much do we miss out that God desires to bless us with because we give up too easily? We know that God blesses us when we are faithful. And I've watched men go out as pastors. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna start this church over here. We're gonna start. And the first sign of difficulty, they give up. They go back. I've watched others where they they face the difficulties and they were faithful with even through the struggles they learned from it. And now some of these guys are pastoring some of the largest churches in the United States, being faithful to what God's called them to do. And this is how chapter 8 ends here. Ezra is pressed on and persisted and led a successful journey to Jerusalem. God blessed him along the way. Look at verse 32. So he came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. Now on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Miramoth, the son of Uriah, the priest. And with them was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. With them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Deshua, and Odiah, the son of Binui with the number and the weight of everything. All the weight was written down at the time. The children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord, and they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people and the house of God. They made it, it says. And they gave support to the people in the house of God. I love that. I love that. They came together. They're supporting now the work that's going on. You know, I want to say this concerning, you know, people coming to Calvary Chapel here. We got people from all over coming into our church. You know, we get a lot of Californians because that's where Calvary Chapel started. But, you know, we get a lot of people coming in. But God has called us to this place to be one body of believers. And God's given us each different gifts to make up Calvary Chapel of Springfield. And he's given us those gifts to further his kingdom and and to use those gifts and to build up the body of believers here. Uh, I like verse 36. They gave support to the people and the house of God. That is what what each of us, that's what we're called to do. Wherever we, you know, called home from before, God's called this place to be our home and to use the gifts that he's given to us. You know, not to, to change a church and make it like, you know, the old church. Well, we, we did it this way, this church, and we did it this way. No, this is Springfield. This is how, how we do it here, led by the Holy Spirit. Notice also that it doesn't say that Ezra arrived with the group and then took over. It doesn't say Ezra arrived with the group and they showed how ministry should really be done here. It doesn't say any of that. 
They just gave support to the people and the house of God. Again, wherever we're from, God has called us together to, to, to equip each one of us to, to do the ministry to bring Him glory. And I believe if there's anything we can take home from Ezra this evening is that God will provide all that we need to do the work that He's called us to do. As long as our hearts are right with Him. Ezra prepared his heart early on during the small days in the same way God has prepared us and in the, in the process of preparing us for even greater things. Our, our best days are not behind us. They're in front of us. Let's pray.